0: Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're this podcasting right now.
1: That's awesome. This <laughs> is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal retinal surgery. I am your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 281, I have the pleasure of giving a preview of Four of the talks from this weekend's angiogenesis meeting. Angiogenesis is a meeting run by Baskin Palmer at the University of Miami and features um, some really groundbreaking uh, informational talks as well as basic science, translational, and clinical research uh, into neovascular disease, including macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and other vascular diseases. I feature four of the speakers from that program today. Uh, they were uh, generous enough to give us a few minutes of their time to discuss their talk and the topic they, um, they chose to discuss. Their full talks as well as the rest of the meeting program are available uh, via the angiogenesis uh, website where you, if you didn't have a chance to catch the meeting, you can watch those talks that were given in this virtual meeting format. Uh, first, we have Dr. Carl Gillo. He'll be discussing the outcomes of the Phase Three Archway Port Delivery System uh, Study for Age-Related Macular Degeneration. Next we'll have Dr. Nadia Wahid, she's discussing a phase 1-2 study looking at a uh, viral vector to produce complement I for the treatment of geographic atrophy and dry age-related macular degeneration. We then have the Dr. Anat Lowenstein, she's is in Israel and has really helped uh, pioneered with their study the use of home OCT monitoring system with artificial intelligence for patients with macular degeneration to monitor their disease condition. And last but not least, we end with Dr. Jeffrey Heyer, who is here to discuss the phase three results of Farisimab the ang 2 anti-VEGF uh, conjugate uh, bipolymer for the treatment of what age-related macular degeneration. Remember that financial disclosures for all of these participants can be found in the episode description, and you can claim CME credits for this podcast episode and many other podcast episodes at the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. Simply click on the link in the episode description. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by Dr. Carl Rogillo from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Rogillo will be speaking at this year's angiogenesis meeting uh, regarding uh, updated data from the phase three archway study looking at the port delivery system. Uh, Dr. Rogillo, thanks for joining us and to dive right in. Tell us a little bit about the, first of all, for any listeners who may need the background, the port delivery system, archway, and uh, kind of what you're going to talk about.
2: I'm happy to, Jay. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to talk about uh, this is the latest data cut from the uh, Archway Phase Three Port Delivery System or PDS clinical trial for neovascular AMD. So so basically, I think most people are familiar with the primary endpoint analysis, uh, which is um, the performance of port delivery system to treat neovascular AMD. In Archway, it was a fixed every 24 week refill. And the primary endpoint was change in BCVA, mean BCVA, from baseline to an average of week 3640. So, for the first time at Androgenesis, I'm presenting extended follow up data. Uh, this was a data cut from uh, September 2020. That was the cutoff. And what that allowed for was um, basically everyone followed up to now week 60 and about 80% of patients followed up through week 72. So this gives us now about 18 months for most of the patients, and that's three cycles of refill. So what people really saw this past summer up up through the fall was the data cut uh, only through the first, just beyond the first refill cycle at 24 Mm -hmm. weeks. Um, So this is really exciting because now we're starting to really delve into longer term follow up So what did it show? Well, it showed essentially identical information to the primary endpoint analysis uh, that we've heard about over the past six months. So in other words, we're seeing essentially identical efficacy to monthly injections um, up close to now 18 months. So that means BCVA uh, 2032 in both arms up through beyond week 60 for all patients up to week 72. And control of exudation, essentially the same. Uh, we're seeing within a few microns difference, really within four micron difference, um, all the way through that extended follow-up. That's very impressive performance. So we can now say that we're about a year and a half into the follow-up for Archway and we're seeing ongoing excellent efficacy. So the next question I'm sure you're gonna ask is, what about the safety? Because right. that's really an important aspect of port delivery. Um, before we dive into that, I do also want to say that another update in terms of the performance is we also looked at supplemental treatment. Now, in the protocol, you could get a supplemental individual injection of ranibizumab if you got the port delivery device one and two months before each refill cycle. And at the first refill cycle, Um, at 24 weeks, 98% of patients did not receive any supplemental injections, which was very impressive unto itself. And for the second refill cycle, it was comparably high at 95%. So that also, again, points to excellent exudative control without the need for supplementation and well up over 95 plus percent of patients. So tremendous reduction in the burden. That's, of course, what we hope for. Uh, for an extended release or sustained delivery device, which is exactly what it is. Um, And also excellent comparable efficacy, which it has to, you know, yeah, you can get extended effects, but you have to get the same efficacy as gold standard monthly. And that's what we're getting. So what about safety? Well, now we have, again, additional safety information. So this is now averaging about 18 months of follow-up And what do we see? Well, the good news is, overall the safety profile looks comparable or similar to what it was at the initial data um, analysis that was presented previously. That's the good news. Uh, We're seeing maybe a slight imbalance of cataract, but no traumatic cataracts. Cataract rates are still low. We're seeing essentially the same endophthalmitis rate. And I'm sure that's what everyone really wants to hear. Essentially, there were four patients, 1.6% of patients that had the port delivery uh, system implanted, uh, so that's 248 patients. Four patients had endophthalmitis. Interestingly, one of the cases that had endophthalmitis had recurrent inflammation, but it wasn't really thought to be infectious of in nature. Um, and with extended follow-up, uh, we had a case of endophthalmitis in the intravitreal Injection arm, so of course that was destined or eventually to happen. So the rate of endophthalmitis in the control arm, intravitreal injection arm, that was a n of 167 patients, one patient, uh, so that's 0.6%, versus 1.6% in the port delivery system thus far. Of course, we're going to have much more follow-up. So what's new? Again, uh, not much more vitreous hemorrhage. Also looking comparable below it, coming in at around 6%. Interestingly, the intravitual injection arm came in at 3.6%. These are small hemorrhages, obviously insignificant for the most part. No one needed surgery. What is new and different is we had two cases of implant dislocation that occurred around the time of a refill exchange procedure. And there was one case of dislocation up to the primary analysis at week, up to week 40, and there's been two others since. So that came up on the radar as the safety issue. And this past summer, when we became aware of some of these dislocation cases, um, there was a, a surgical protocol modification that was put in place, because an analysis was done on the three cases of device dislocation and a few others that have since occurred actually in some of the other trials the original phase two and the extension studies, called the portal trials. So, in looking back at all this, you know, every surgery was videoed, and it was shown that um, five of the six cases, the incision site was too long, effectively too long. Um, the incision is supposed to be three point five millimeters, no longer than three point seven. And five out of six were longer than three point seven, and we think that puts the eye at a much higher risk for this dislocation problem. There've been no dislocations since um, the protocol modification, but that was only instituted this past summer. So uh, we'll have more, uh, many more procedures done um, in the extension study uh, as time goes on. Plus there are now diabetic retinopathy studies and a global uh, neovascular AMD study. So a lot more safety information, a lot more long-term experience is forthcoming.
1: Dr. Jello, thanks so much for providing this insight in your talk. Uh, of course, people who missed the talk will have the opportunity to watch the full uh, on the angiogenesis website, and we'll have that in the episode description. I'm sure we're going to hear more and more information about the port delivery system in the months to come. Thank you so much for your time.
2: You sure will. Thank you, Jay, so much for having me.
1: Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by Dr. Nadia Wahid. Uh, Dr. Wahid is giving a talk at this year's angiogenesis meeting um, entitled A Phase 1 slash 2 study on gene therapy for treatment of geographic atrophy. Uh, So Dr. Waheed, thanks for joining us. And tell us a little bit about what you're describing in your talk.
3: Jay, thanks so much for having me. And it's um, really an honor to present at Angiogenesis. So I am presenting interim data from the first in human phase one to Um, focus trial, which is a trial looking evaluating gene therapy uh, that uh, produces uh, complement factor I for the inhibition of growth geographic atrophy in patients with dry AMD. Um, so so in this talk, I go over interim data, which is safety data from uh, 19 patients, and biomarker data from uh, 10 or so patients that had been followed up for uh, longer than six months on the study, um, and I, I describe those findings. Um, so GD005, uh, which is the gene therapy, is administered as a subretinal injection in these patients um, into the subretinal space. It's an it's a AAV2-based gene, gene therapy vector that's designed to produce complement factor I. And as, as you're aware, complement factor I is a key regulator of the alternative pathway of the complement system, uh, which is uh, involved in the progression of uh, patients with AMD. And as we know from other clinical trials, blocking the alternative pathway can result in a significant reduction in the progression of, of patients with geographic atrophy. So um, the initial data from this study showed that gene therapy was generally very well tolerated, um, you know, there were no serious adverse events related to the gene therapy itself or to the surgery um, associated with the gene therapy. Um, and, and what was interesting was um, in this study, what's unique is that um, they're doing vitreous sampling in these patients to look at the biomarker levels. Um, and all patients, nine out of 10 patients actually showed an increase in the complement factor I levels in their vitreous, thereby showing that the, that the gene therapy was actually transducing the cells and resulting in a production in their complement factor I levels. Um, an average of 146% above baseline. Um, this seemed to be sustained out to a year for those patients who were followed out uh, all the way to a year. Um, and, and the other uh, interesting piece was that, you know, if you look at the downstream markers of the complement pathways, such as BA and C3 breakdown products, um, that we were also seeing a uh, statistically significant lowering of these, um, of these downstream breakdown products uh, of uh, suggesting that the alternative complement pathway in these patients had, had been modulated and that had had an effect on, on um, you know, on these downstream uh, complement markers um, and, you know, direct target engagement essentially. Um, and what was also really fascinating for me was that there was this linear uh, correlation between the upregulation of complement factor I and the downregulation of the alternative pathway markers um, this is really nice dose response between CFI and the downstream complement biomarkers, right? Because that suggests that this the increase in CFI levels is having this direct effect on the alternative pathway, and you know, and essentially um, modulating. Uh, and you know, is a nice biomarker to have there.
1: You know, and just one last follow up question. Great, great description of the results. Uh, what are we looking at? What are we looking at moving forward? Right. So is this something that we need to see longer kind of follow up on this cohort? or is this sufficient that we're starting to look towards future phase studies that may look at the same treatment algorithm?
3: Yeah, so um, so we are, so, so far we have, um, you know, data um, at a year and a half uh, on one of our patients and all patients are going up to five years uh, post-administration of gene therapy. Um, to look at these biomarkers. But um, concurrently, because uh, of these results and previous results um, that we've seen in our patients, um, this uh, gt 5 is currently enrolling into phase two clinical trials. Um, The Explorer and the Horizon trial, which look at, uh, you know, again, administration of subretinal gene therapy in patients uh, with geographic atrophy, from which we hope to get clinical data. And of course, we follow these patients out for uh, for two years with the primary endpoint being at 40 weeks uh, and looking at uh, the effect of, GA, uh, of the 5 on GA lesion size growth. Um, so looking for a reduction in lesion size growth compared to uh, control groups in both these studies.
1: Dr. Wahid, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we look forward to hearing more about this really exciting uh, treatment modality. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Jay. Thank you.
1: Straight from the cutter's mouth is now happy to be joined by Dr. Anat Lowenstein, joining us all the way from Israel. Uh, Dr. Lowenstein will be presenting at Angiogenesis about a very exciting topic, which is home OCT and applications for neovascular uh, age related macular degeneration. So, Dr. Lowenstein, tell us a little bit about your presentation and about the experience uh, you've had with the home based OCT system.
4: Thank you very much, uh, Jan, for inviting me to speak here. Uh, so uh, the, I'm going to talk about um, our fully integrated HOMO-CT system and the way it is by subject to vascular AMD at home, and also propose some novel reporting parameters for temporal fluid uh, volume dynamics while using the HOMO-CT. Presenting um, the HOMO-CT system, which, is, which has a central 10 degrees field of view, and has been shown to be very accurate as compared to commercial OCTs in identifying by an AI-based algorithm, uh, intraretinal fluid, subretinal fluid, and the need for treatment. It is combined with the an OCT analyzer that actually uses the OCT output, the B-scans, by uh, analyzing it with artificial intelligence to, to do segmentation of the ILM and RPE, and to provide a fluid volume quantification by uh, both by a map, a thickness map, and graph that shows the way it goes over time. And what I'm presenting here particularly is um, our prospective uh, IRB-approved clinical trial that included in this particular study um, uh, four patients that had uh, the, the, the homoocytil longitudinally in their house, and they were able to self-operate it not in a home mimicking environment, but actually rather in their home. The way they are doing, they are, they are do, they will do it in real life. And we had very very good results for them. Patients were able to operate the, the home OCT with self-imaging with an acceptable quality, more than ninety-four percent of the time, and they were able to. The NOAA, our automatic system, was able to identify the fluid as compared to a human grader in more than 94% of the time. The technology produces a thickness map that shows the, the evaluation of the fluid over time and the reaction to treatment. So we feel that it is a very exciting technology that can be used for uh, the management of uh, neovascular macular degeneration by patients, elderly patients at home, and provide longitudinal information regarding the status of their disease, their response to treatment, and the need for retreatment.
1: You know, this is a very exciting kind of idea. You know, one of the biggest burdens we saw during even the pandemic was How are patients able to even monitor, both patients with dry, we're monitoring conversion to wet, patients with wet who either are being treated as needed or in a treat and extend regimen, how do they know when to come in for for treatment? Um, You know, one of the things I I saw you had written about or discussed was there is also sometimes some applications for home treatment, you know, so if we are using some sort of therapies that can be done at home, what's been your experience incorporating the OCT with that? Has it been kind of integrated at any point?
4: Yeah, well, for now, we did not use it because it, it's only in the context of a clinical trial. So we are not basing our treatment decisions on uh, the home OCT yet. But I think it has a lot of potential both from home, for home management and for telemedicine. Because, you know, as a retina specialist, if we want to exercise telemedicine, we would need to have the patient image their eyes by an OCT somewhere. Otherwise, yeah. we can talk to the patients. If not give us any idea if we need to bring them in for, in, for injection or not. So uh, this can uh, work very well, both with telemedicine and with home management of patients that we needed to exercise during the pandemic. Even now, today, we are, we are not going to, home, to, to private homes anymore because of lack of resources, because now all the physicians are in-house uh, need to work. But we are going to elderly, elderly people shelters and we are g- getting groups of patients for treatment. So there too, if they had the home OCT there, it could really give us an idea whom to treat and whom not to treat in a specific time.
1: Well, Dr. Launcia, I look forward to hearing your whole talk at the meeting. And thank you again for joining us for this as well as for the meeting across the ocean. So thank you.
4: Thank you very much for inviting me. (laughs) See you soon.
1: Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Heyer from Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Heyer gave a terrific talk at this year's angiogenesis meeting um, where he talked about the uh, phase three results of um, this new molecule, not in the market yet, ferisimab, and it's used for age-rela- wet age-related macular degeneration. Uh, Dr. Heyer, thanks for joining us. And for our listeners who may not be familiar, could you give us a little background on ferisimab and how this trial was designed?
0: Sure, first Jay, happy to do that. So fericimab is a bispecific antibody that is designed for intraocular use that has both an anti-VEGF and an anti-ANG2 component. So it's the the first agent we've seen that has a dual mechanism of action. And we know that the VEGF component of many diseases that we treat and specifically neovascular AMD and DME which were both presented at this meeting. Uh, the anti-VEGF component's obviously valuable. There's a lot of work that has shown that ANG2 also plays a role in these diseases, that it's upregulated in these diseases. And so uh, a dual mechanism of action to treat both of these um, pathways can be advantageous. The Tanaya and Lucerne studies were randomized controlled phase three studies that, um, that looked at ferisimab six milligrams as compared to a flippercept in the treatment of treatment naive neovascular AMD patients. So these were patients that had not received previous treatment. They had visual acuity from 2032 to 2320 And they had subfoveal, juxtaphovial, or extrafovial CNV with a subfovial component. I think it's important to understand the study design. So patients were randomized one-to-one. There were over 1,300 patients enrolled. And in the Flibercept arm, patients received a Flibercept on label, three three monthly loading doses, and then Q8 weeks of Flibercept. For the farisimab arm, they had four initial monthly loading doses. There was then an assessment of disease activity that occurred at week 20, which was essentially eight weeks following the last dose. And if patients had disease activity and disease activity were essentially um, determined by visual acuity and OCT, or central subfield thickness, as well as investigator discretion. If they had disease activity at that point, they were treated, and they maintained from that point on an eight-week dosing regimen. If they didn't have activity, they were brought back four weeks later at 24 weeks. If they had disease activity then, they were treated, and from that point on, maintained a 12-week regimen. If they didn't have disease activity there, they were brought back four weeks later. They're now 16 weeks out from treatment, treated, and they maintained a 16-week regimen. These regimen were maintained throughout the first year of the study, and the primary endpoint was an average of weeks 40, 44, and 48
1: and then in terms of results, right, so this is really the big breaking news is the results that were released in a press release, I believe, uh, just a couple of days ago, a day before the meeting, and you kind of went more into the data yesterday. Big take-home results for the clinicians out there who are listening, looking for treatment options for their patients.
0: Yeah, so the the top-line results showed that the, the ferisimab arms met their primary endpoint, which was non-inferiority to to flibbercept, and they did this with roughly 45% of patients maintaining a Q16-week dosing regimen with almost 80% of patients on a Q12-week or greater dosing regimen. So almost 80% of patients on an extended dosing regimen and demonstrated non-inferiority in terms of visual acuity and similar uh, term similar anatomic outcomes in terms of central subfield thickness and similar outcomes in terms of three-line gainers and prevention of moderate vision loss.
1: Well I think I think two big questions heading forward is is the first question is after um, the experience we had with brolicizumab last year there's going to be questions about safety events, inflammation, any of those kind of things that were looked at, I'm sure there's been a lot more attention paid to this in any sort of phase two or phase three study since then. Anything to comment on? Do we have that data yet?
0: Yeah, You. so you bring up a, a very important point, the safety. Obviously, our sensitivity to inflammation and safety events is heightened dramatically. And uh, the good news is that we didn't see any worrisome safety signals. There In terms of inflammation, there was a numerically higher amount of inflammation in the ferisumab arms, but it was relatively low in both arms. If you looked at across the studies, there was inflammation noted in 2% of the ferisumab patients and 1.2% of the aflibercept patients. The good news is none of these were associated with vasculitis or occlusive retinitis. In fact, none was seen in either arm of the study.
1: You know, one of the, uh, end with this question, I feel like more and more, um, even the lay person knows more about the FDA approval process after we've read read all the news with COVID vaccine and everything, but kind of take us through, so what's next? So when will this be potentially available to patients? Uh, What needs to happen for that to happen? And then for you, where are you gonna apply this? This was a study where it was done mostly, it sounds like in treatment naive patients, right? But I feel like a lot of the applicability may be in patients who are either non-responsive or incompletely responsive to current therapy or cannot extend to past a certain interval. As a clinician, those would be the kind of the sweet spots to maybe introduce this. But what are your thoughts going forward and how this will be used?
0: Yeah, so so the first question as to when this will be available, I, I tend to defer those questions to Genentech and Roach, but I know obviously with the results we've seen that the plan is to to put together the submission package and do that. You know, it's it's actually been remarkably little time that we've had this data. When you consider the data locks were basically one and two months ago for DME and AMD, we've seen um, a great deal of data in a very rapid amount of time. So I'm sure they will Work hard to put this package together and get this submitted to the FDA as soon as they can. But what that, what that time frame is, I defer to them. Uh, it's an excellent question. How will we utilize this in our practice? I think most of us take new agents like this that have the potential to demonstrate either durability or anatomic benefits, and we begin by taking our treatments are patients that have been somewhat hard to treat, patients that either have suboptimal responses or were unable to extend. And we often will treat those patients initially and use those patients as a gauge to tell us uh, what our experience is likely to be like. Uh, That's certainly how we incorporated a Flibercept into our armamentarium when it was first approved. And it's how we initially started with brolicizumab. So I would envision doing that same course of action with my patients, and then based on that response, and if that response is positive as the phase three data suggests it could be, then I would envision starting to incorporate uh, fericumab into not only my previously treated patients, but my treatment naive patients as well.
1: Dr. Heyer, thanks so much for joining us and for uh, joining us with angiogenesis, the wonderful talk.
0: Always a pleasure to be there, Jay
1: thank you again to all the doctors who joined for this podcast doctors Rajillo, Wahid, Lowenstein and higher many thanks to Mike Vinacasa, Angela Chang and Louis Kai our stellar production social media team remember listeners you can visit us at retinapodcast.com that's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com you can find all 281 episodes, including this one so today, are sorted by category and archived for your listening pleasure. You can always reach us by clicking on the contact us link on the website or emailing us directly at retinapodcast@gmail.com. gmail.com. We are on social media, Facebook and Twitter at Retina Podcast. We look forward to hearing more about ideas and thoughts we have for future episodes. We appreciate the patient care you deliver on a daily basis, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here each week. This is Jay Schreeder, signing off.